Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, thank you for joining me this Friday. December 15th, we are going to do this Friday what we do every Friday. We are opening up the phone lines so that you can join the conversation, whether it is by text or by actually phoning in and talking on the air. 773-763-9278. If you've never called in before, I know I say this all the time, but if you are thinking of calling in today for the first time, an easy way to remember the phone number is 773-763-WCPT, okay? You can call us on that line. You can also shoot me a text. Uh, Just pull up the little text icon on your phone. Plug in that phone number and uh, send me your message. I will be reading the texts and I will try to, sometimes we get a lot of texts and I can't respond to everyone, but I try to respond to most of them, if for no other reason, just to let you know that somebody actually did read it. Okay, so here we go. From now until 3.30, it's just going to be you and me talking about the news of the day. Uh, Big news of the day. There's a lot of little things and some big things. The jury is still deliberating in the uh, Rudy Giuliani case. This jury is trying to figure out how much money Rudy Giuliani has to pay Ruby Freeman and Wandria Arche Shamos. They sued him for $48 million, uh, saying he falsely and repeatedly accused them of helping steal the 2020 presidential election. And they were, oh, some of the texts and, and emails and voicemails these women have gotten are just unbelievable. Unbelievably crude, unbelievably violent, unbelievably vile. The judge, Rudy Giuliani, this isn't now what the jury is deciding isn't whether or not he's guilty of defaming them. That's already been decided. He is. He did. He continues to. What the jury is deciding right now is what's it going to cost him? What, what amount of money is he is he going to pay? Rudy Giuliani, who really seems to have really lost it. I mean, he's already been found to have defamed these two women, right? That's settled. This trial is all about how much money he has to pay them. He said that he was going to be taking the stand and he was going to be bringing the evidence. Well, he never took the stand and there is no evidence. There was one social media site today, this morning, that was listening to the arguments. And in in closing arguments, Rudy Giuliani's own lawyer was kind of like, you know, he's almost 80. You know, uh, you got to... 
You got to remember the good things he did earlier in his life. Hopefully we'll get a we'll get a resolution to this before we get off the air today. If we do, I will bring it to you. Other news of this day, which I'm sure you've already heard, especially I think we uh, Associated Press reported it at the top of the hour. <sighs> Three Israeli hostages were actually killed by Israeli defense forces. They mistakenly shot them. Um, An Al Jazeera cameraman also has died in uh, the fighting. Um, a bad situation seemingly getting worse by the day. Jake Sullivan is on his way to Israel. President Biden has been more and more forceful in what he's been saying, trying to convince Benjamin Netanyahu that he's got to rein it in. There were reports yesterday that some of the missile strikes, the missiles that were falling in Gaza were, quote unquote, dumb missiles. You know, there are smart missiles where you can program in a set of uh, coordinates and the missile knows exactly where it's going and that's where it lands. And then there's other missiles that just get dropped and hit in a general radius. They are... um, At least yesterday, the reports were that there were dumb missiles being dropped. Yes, I think the terrorist attack was horrible beyond words. But we hold Israel to a higher standard. We hold Israel to a higher standard in what they do and how they do it. President Biden has been warning Netanyahu that the world is going to be turning against Israel if he doesn't rein it in, if the strikes don't become more surgical, if rather than indiscriminate bombing, there are boots on the ground. I mean, when there was that hospital where Israel said Hamas was working out of a hospital They didn't just bomb the hospital. They sent troops in and they cleared the hospital floor by floor. They did find some communications equipment. They found some weapons and um, eventually they found a tunnel, which they had believed was there. There's even actually been a call in Israel There is an Israeli newspaper, and um, I don't know how to say the name Haaretz, I think it is, that this week said that Netanyahu needed to go, that the only way to bring about any kind of peace here was basically to have Netanyahu's, it was time for Netanyahu's political career to come to an end. That is an Israeli newspaper that was publishing that. So this isn't just world opinion telling Netanyahu he is overplaying his hand here. It is his own people.
So we will keep an eye on this situation as well. Oh, and um, still no change. Looks like uh, Mike Johnson is folding up his tent and going home for the holidays along with all the other members of Congress. (sighs) With no vote on any aid package to Israel or to Ukraine or to Taiwan. We're going to take a quick break when we come back. John Kirby was talking today about the Congress. We'll have more on that after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Looks like um, January sometime will be the earliest that Congress can vote on an aid package. Despite the willingness of a lot of Congress people to stay Until this gets done, um, Mike Johnson decided that it wasn't a priority. The National Defense Authorization Act did get voted on and passed. So at least there's that. But, um, and there might be a bookkeeping way where we can continue funding for Ukraine I was reading about it this morning. Um, You know, our Defense Department has a certain amount of money set aside for Ukraine. And when we send munitions to Ukraine, whatever the cost of those munitions is, is subtracted from the overall dollar amount that's been set aside for Ukraine. Well, um, there was news this morning that perhaps... Looking at the books, perhaps the military overcharged Ukraine for those weapons, which means, oh, they sort of have a credit in the bank. So maybe we can keep uh, funding for a little while longer. Uh, I don't really care whether there really was an overcharge that they're just now finding or whether they've decided that if they declare there was an overcharge, that maybe they can support Ukraine a little bit longer, hopefully until Congress gets its act together. I don't care. Either way, support for Ukraine is too important. Too important. Um, Because anybody who thinks Vladimir Putin's going to stop with Ukraine has not learned any lessons from history and has not learned any lessons from the things Vladimir Putin himself has said. John Kirby, a retired Navy rear admiral, rear admiral, uh, who is now the spokesperson for the National Security Council, talked about Congress and Ukraine. Listen to this. I sure hope that those House Republicans who have for months held hostage critical assistance to Ukraine heard Putin's message loud and clear. Instead... They're heading home for the holidays, while Ukrainians are heading right back into the fight. They'll face more shelling, more air attacks, more cold, dark nights. And just over the last 24 to 48 hours, we've seen additional airstrikes by Russia on critical infrastructure. And they'll face more death and destruction to their families and their homeland. They need our help, and they need it right now, not after the eggnog. Right now. Yep. Good luck with that. (laughs) 
Let's go to the phone lines. Steve's calling in from the Gold Coast. Hey, Steve, how are you today this Friday? Oh, fine, all things considered. So I wanted to make a couple of points. And, and I think, you know, going into the, the 2024 election cycle, there are certainly a lot of issues, domestic, foreign policy, and so forth. But, you know, as James Carville famously said, you know, it's the economy, stupid. So <laughs> we do need to talk about that because that's the reason uh, that people will eventually, you know, vote one way or the other. Uh, it, it's not to minimize what's going on in Ukraine and Israel, other places, Taiwan, and, you know, you can go through a whole litany of foreign policy and international relations issues. But the, the fact is that Americans vote the, their pocketbooks. And uh, this administration needs to do uh, a better job at communicating with people. The New York Times. Steve. Paul, did we lose Steve mid-sentence or is it just me? Oh, OK. Uh, sorry, Hello? Steve, you dropped out mid-sentence. Can you can you kind of start that thought again? So, yes, I mean, we need to talk about the successes of this administration with regard to the economy. And we're looking at record low, near record low unemployment, good growth in terms of the economy. We're looking at controlling inflation. It's now at pretty much at the levels which we'd like it to be between two and three uh, percent. So, you know. OK, we've had a Paul, we've had this problem with Steve before. Do you have any idea what what he might be doing that cuts himself off? <laughs> okay, Steve, uh, we're really sorry. We've had this problem with you before. Sometimes I want you to know my face shuts the phone off when I'm talking to people. So uh, I know it's generally not great sound if you call us and put yourself on speaker, but... Um, something something untoward is happening here. So, yes, uh, let's go to Dave, who is calling in from Hoffman Estates. Hey, Dave, how are you today? Out of his phone of his. I mean, he's got to like three, four times in a row that he's called. I and know. I know. It's really weird. Yeah, it just him. Oh, so anyway, did uh, there was a story this morning that in, in Ankara, Turkey, where this member of parliament was on stage railing against Israel and saying, you're going to bring the wrath of God against you. <laughs> then he collapsed from the stage from a apparent heart attack. Oh. And then, you know, <laughs> then he died like two days later. But that got me to thinking about, uh, I don't know if you recall years ago when the um, late comedian George Carlin used to talk about <laughs> Before you die, you get a two-minute warning. <laughs> and he said, use it wisely. He said, be like at a honorarium or something, and get and you get the call and say, if I'm lying, may God strike me dead. And then, boom. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but um, I guess, you know, there were a lot of comments on that one earlier this morning, you know, that uh, about the wrath of God and that. And uh, hopefully um, Mike Johnson doesn't get a hold of that one, you know. <laughs> Yeah, he, really. Saying say that he was, you know, appointed, you know, God spoke to him, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, and Dave, you know, most people will sort of say things like God spoke to me, you know, and they mean that they felt they just sort of felt drawn to a certain thing or a certain idea. But when Mike Johnson says it, I suspect that he really thinks that there has been times when he has heard the voice of God in his head. I don't think he's, 
I, I think he's being quite literal when he says that, based on some of the things that I've heard him say. Yeah, yeah. Well, like with these uh, Republicans, use the old George Costanza. It's not a lie if you believe it. You know, so <laughs> he believes it probably. So, anyway, all right, John. I just thought I'd give you that one for a little bit of a lightheartedness. Yeah, for a I Friday. wish George Carlin were still around. Can you imagine uh, the routines he'd be doing? Oh, I wish he had. I wish he had stayed around. Yeah, you'll be yeah. Cool. Listen, I'll clear off, Joe. Have okay, yourself thanks. a good weekend. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Dave. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. Jim's calling in from Chicago. Hi, Jim. How are you today? Hi, Joe. How are you? I don't know if you touched on the story. I thought it was fascinating. It was that Trump uh, uh, is going to sell the outfit he was arrested in piece by piece to his whoever wants to buy it. But I, I think that, that it'd be more valuable if it was a uh, a prison uh, issue. You know, <laughs> you know, it'd be more valuable. When you think with a little cap, you know, we could sell pieces of the cap. And yeah, but 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 I think when they issue you prison garb, you don't actually get to own it. I think they no, just lend it to you. I know, but Joe, he's unscrupulous enough to to get two <laughs> pair. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he'd steal a pair. But uh, that was an interesting thing. And just uh, look at this uh, Chesbro character who dropped up the uh, uh, fake elector scheme. He's got a cop now to uh, something reasonable before they put him in the who's gal. And. Uh, I guess Milwaukee, Milwaukee, I mean, Wisconsin, they already uh, managed the plea up there because uh, they don't want to go to prison either. And uh, that crazy Johnson, that senator, he's avoiding the, the, the melee. But the other states, I think, are still up for grabs. I mean, they still might go to prison over those uh, fake electors, which, well, they should, because I never heard of fake electors until until uh, yeah. the, the Republican Party uh, yeah, if, if I have time to play it, maybe um, maybe later in this hour, Caitlin Collins did an interview with Ron Johnson about the fake electors, and um, she she tried to get him to give her some real information, which he didn't. And then afterwards, I don't know if it was the day later or whatever, she did a big segment on her show and she fact checked. What he said and, you know, because he, he said he was going to send her all the information and he sent her some stuff that she shared with um, the the viewers. And then she explained why it didn't say what he was saying. It said why why it was different. I'm going to try to get to that. Um, yeah, I know, so good, yeah. good luck with Rod Johnson, because he's Thanks. like, that's like, talk, <laughs> that's like talking to somebody, uh, a guard at the, uh, you know, who at the. Uh, National History Museum. Anyway, you have a great weekend, Joe. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Thank very you. Much. Thanks for calling in. Um, I, I think we have Steve back. Steve from the Gold Coast. Steve, are you there? Yes, I am. Uh, oh, you sound AT&T. better. Yes, to hell with AT and T. Yeah, but I've, I have an iPhone 15, and yet I've got AT and T. And I swear to God, I always drop you guys for some reason. I don't know why. Huh. But uh, so I, I wanted to, to go back to the point about focusing on the economy and not letting Americans forget exactly where we are. The New York Times published a great piece this this weekend, and they talked about something, you know, this new term called vibe session. 
In other words, it's nothing tangible that people can point to because the reality is that GDP is great, unemployment at historic lows. The stock market just hit a new record high. Un- rather, inflation is under control and going down. And we're actually in, within the Fed talking about lowering interest rates, no, no longer mm-hmm. raising them. But the, so all of this it runs contrary to the Republican and conservative narrative. So if you're not listening to, to actual credible news sources and research, then you would be led to believe that, you know, we're on the verge of 1929 and everybody's going to be jumping out of high rises, you know, because that's where the economy's headed. And that's where a lot of Americans think we are because they're listening to this sort of nonsense. And we've got to get the message out to them. You know, I, I think that some people act, believe that uh, that unless prices go back to where they were in early 2020, which is not how it works, um, you know, that, that basically the economy's in the tank because they're paying more. Well, yes, but incomes have also gone up. We're now at almost $75,000 for the median household income in America. So it, it's not about what you pay. It's about what you're making versus what you pay. That's and right. Pre- prices are not going to go back to 2020 levels. But also, you know, you're also making more money. So, you know, we've got to hammer home exactly where we are. And so the, the, the dire predictions, this is not a year and a half ago, the, things look really good at this point. And the, the, this administration needs to let the American people know that it's under this watch, this president, that, and how we got here. And, and stop with the doom and gloom, because the doom and gloom just is not reflected in what uh, the numbers say. So instead, it's just this Oh, well, it's how I feel in my gut, you know, kind of nonsense. That's not how economics works. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that that's going to be something we need to pay attention to in 2024. This whole idea of that is this isn't even like alternate facts or fake news, but this sense that, you know, there's a vibe and the and, you know, this you may be telling me X facts, but I've got a vibe that things are different. That's uh, that's going to be something that uh, we need to talk about and need to address. Steve, thanks for ke- continuing Thank to try. I appreciate <laughs> no it. No problem. Take care. Have a good weekend. You too. We're going to take a break, and we're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. want to share with you a couple of uh, texts that I've gotten. Uh, first of all, one person texted in that the... Um, uh, newspaper that I was referring to, um, Haaretz, I am sorry if that's a, mi- a mispronunciation. Uh, they said that they get it, uh, they have access to it, um, from their library, uh, online and, and read it every day. And they said it seems to be very unbiased and straightforward. And I like that the stories are written by Israeli journalists. So um, I didn't realize that it um, it never occurred to me that something like that would be um, available from your local library. Uh, somebody else texted in. They don't want me to give you any kind of identifying information. Um, but they wanted to share that if we don't end this war, meaning what's going on in the Middle East, Democrats won't be able to win in 2024. I don't know how what's going on in the Middle East is going to affect the 2024 election, but the problem here is that um, Joe Biden can't simply pick up the phone and tell Benjamin Netanyahu what to do. Uh, that would not that would not work. We can advise, we can cajole, 
We can offer carrots and sticks, but we we can't tell another country what to do. Benjamin Netanyahu is um, personality-wise very much like uh, Donald Trump and uh, is only willing to take advice in, shall we say, a limited capacity. I mean... There were thousands of protests in the streets right before all this happened uh, because he was trying to basically take away the power of the courts in Israel. He wanted, um, just like Donald Trump has said, he thinks that if he gets elected again, he's going to make the it's not going to be three equal branches of government. It's the executive branch, the branch that represents the president. That should really be the most powerful. And the congressional branch and the judicial branch, they should really be sort of second tier. That is, um, that is, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. His, um, own folks were protesting in the streets by the thousands as he tried to undermine the court system in Israel. This guy, is not going to do something simply because Joe Biden tells him to do it. You know, and, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing over and over again in these op-eds and uh, comments on social media is somehow this idea that we're in charge, that the United States is in charge of what's happening over there. And if something goes wrong, it's our fault um, if um, if things aren't um, if the if the war effort over there isn't constrained, it's our fault. If they're using dumb bombs instead of smart bombs, it's our fault. And um, much as uh, we might like President Biden to be more powerful when it comes to Israeli politics, there's uh, only so much he can do. And we have to remember that. Let's go back to the phone lines. Earl's calling in from Hyde Park. Hello, Earl. How are you today? Oh, Joan, I'm doing fine. Thank you for taking my call. I'm going to uh, be a little bit uh, contentious here. I'm going to put a different point of view out to you and Steve. Okay. I'm going to say, I'm going to say that I agree that the White House could do a better job. But there is a different size megaphone between the left and the right. There are way too many uh, news media outlets on the right side that push the propaganda. We have CNN trying to be, Walter Cronkite trying to be equally uh, critical of both sides when I don't think um, that... That's a fair comparison. I think that's uh, that the Republican Party are in their uh, uh, anti-democratic uh, wing right now is far more dangerous uh, to the American public than uh, what uh, they perceive the Biden administration uh, ills are. And we don't have billionaires stick it, stepping up and promoting our messages uh, like we have on the right. And uh, I'm saying that to say, basically, in a nutshell, uh, 
I don't necessarily blame the White House for not getting the message out. The message comes from and through the media. And if the media is not doing an adequate job of promoting Biden's positions, then I don't think it's fair to criticize him for not um, trying to communicate to the people because the White House uh, is trying to communicate to the people. But the media, uh, like CNN, is trying to be equal to both sides and give them both equal proxies. I I agree. I don't think I don't think President Biden has been getting uh, a fair shot in in the media. I think some uh, you know, I I told you, I mean, uh, like over a year ago, I was so ticked off at what I kept reading in The New York Times that I canceled my subscription to everything but the crossword puzzle. I think I get some recipes, too, because everything they reported, Earl, was well, President Biden does this really good thing, but will it last or Republicans are going to attack it or can he sustain it? And, you know, I've grown up paying attention to the news my whole adult life. And there was a time when just President Biden does this thing and it turned out to be good. That would have been fine. That would have been the news. That would have been the story. There wouldn't have been this feeling like we have to. Um, somehow temper it like we can't be we can't be, you know, just saying he did a good thing without the but without the however's. And I don't know when that started. I don't know why it started, but I am really sick to death of it. I completely agree with you there. And I guess we in more agreement than uh, I started off with because. <laughs> Uh, another it's a quick example, then I'll let you go. I am totally upset with Bill Maher. I mean, he puts some pox equally on both houses. And oh, yeah. I used to watch him. I used to watch him. But then, like, over time, he just got more radical and and angrier you know he started off he was he was trying to be more he wanted to be political but he was wanting to be funny and then over time it just seemed like the funny went away and it was just you know i'm angry about this and i'm angry about that i i gave up on him a long time ago too even before i gave up on the new york times <laughs> and the last thing about bill maher is that uh, i think his success has gone to his head a little bit and he, if you look at his posture sometimes, he has the posture of, I know better than you guys. And he kind of talks down to his guests that are on the panel. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, you know what I'm saying? He's kind of got an arrogance about him Oh, now. God. He always I, thinks I think he's he the has. smartest guy in the room based yeah. on, yeah, you know, I'm not saying that he's bad. dumb, but he is not always the smartest guy in the room. But, man, he... Obviously, I mean, and even if you think you're the smartest person in the room, it's it's not something that you want to convey to people. You know, it's not something you want to rub other people's noses in. Nobody likes somebody like that. I don't know. He's gotten more and more out there and unlikable and angry as time goes on. You know, he's like a cranky old white guy now. Yeah, you know, he. I think it, the big turning point for me was when he predicted that Trump would win and then Trump won. And then after that, you know, he went on this, I think, you know, rampage where, you know, I'm much better. You know, I'm so smart. And, you know, I, you know, I, I see the problems better than you and blah, 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 yeah. now, you know, so. 
No, he I wasn't on his there. show. What's that? Um, oh, that that blonde Barbie doll type. She's real tall. She's th- Ann Coulter. She has long blonde hair. She was the first one because I used to watch his show back then. Ann Coulter was on his show and she said to him, I think Donald Trump is going to win. And he was all taken aback. And then over time, both he and the filmmaker, Michael Moore, um, Michael Moore started coming on the show and saying, you know, don't laugh at this guy. Don't count this guy out. This guy could very well be the next president. But I remember it was that idea that Trump was going to be the next president. He didn't come up with that idea on his own. Ann Coulter was on his show, and she was the first person, at least uh, in that particular forum, that I remember saying, you know, Donald Trump is going to win this. Mark my words. Yeah, yeah. So, thank so you there, Mr. Smarty Pants, You know, believe it or not, there are black folks that I can't believe that are voting for Trump. Uh, supporting Trump. I don't and understand I it no either, idea. Earl. No. What, what, can you give me any insight into that? Uh, uh, not really. Uh, I'm perplexed about it. All my friends are perplexed about it, other than those that are trying to protect their money. Yeah. They I don't know. That the, uh, Ray yeah, listens. I, know I don't I'm, get up that early, but my partner Ray listens to Santita, and he said that there's quite a number of people who call in and say that they're really mad at Joe Biden and that Joe Biden hasn't done anything to make their lives better. So basically, they're going to show him they're going to they're going to vote for Donald Trump. And I just I don't understand why there is a, an African-American person in this country who thinks that they will be better off with Donald Trump as president. I don't get that. Well, you know, they've always been there, but the naysayers were. A very small minority, and you know, but now there's a larger minority, a larger minority there, and I think a lot of it has to do to right wing talk media because I have family members who are locked into the Trump thing. They they can say, uh, you know, quote any uh, right wing uh, media host uh, verbatim, and uh, so. I think that has a lot to do going back to what my original statement was. The megaphone on the right is just bigger than the megaphone on the left. And I just wish some billionaires would step up and help the president out because it doesn't look like the media is going to do anything about it. Or we don't have enough media outlets. I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. And part of the problem is that the people who watch Fox, uh, it's been demonstrated that people who watch Fox generally don't pay attention to anything else. They never watch CNN. They never watch MSNBC. Uh, they have no other sources of information. So whatever Fox feeds to them, that's what they believe. Because, and here's, I think, part of the problem. You know, this is my demographic. I'm an old fart. And we grew up in a time where you could believe what people said to you on television. Now, there was a fairness doctrine. There was an equal time doctrine. There were a lot of guardrails in place back then that don't exist now. Plus, um, I think that there was a different standard. I mean, you know, we never believed for a minute that Walter Cronkite would ever lie to us about anything. So if he said it, you could believe it. And we have that training that what we hear on television is something we can believe. And sadly, a lot of people 
are watching Fox where they are filled with disinformation and misinformation and a lot of things that, that don't fit with their worldview they don't even cover. And, you know, so people just take it on faith that what they're hearing is true. And I think that's, um, I think the younger generation is going to be a lot savvier. I saw a few, uh, a year or two or three ago, they did uh, an analysis of the ages that watched cable news. And most cable news audiences skew old, but the oldest audience of all of them was the audience for Fox. The average age was 70. So, you know, maybe as, uh, Sadly, my generation dies off. Maybe maybe things will change. I hope so, Earl. Hey, Earl, thanks for the call. Uh, really appreciate it when you, when you call in. We're going to take a break. We have a lot more callers to get to. We'll get to them right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Friday. We spend the first half of every Friday taking your calls and reading your texts. The number to reach us is 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. Uh, Phil is calling in from the north side of Chicago. Hey, Phil, how are you today? John, how are you today, sweetheart? Pretty good. Okay. Uh, as far as Bill Maher goes, I'll get right to the point. I've been following him for a long time, uh, went back when he was uh, politically incorrect on a fledgling network that was the comedy, that was Comedy Central. Uh, I actually saw him at the Blackstone Theater in Chicago back in, I think, late 90s or whatever. Anyways, he has made it. He, I, I, here, I'll start with this, too. I know people, I'm in the trade, and I know people that have met him at hotels downtown Chicago. When he stayed here, they said he was just a smug. I don't want to say the word, but hmm. not a very nice guy. And this was in the early 2000s. Um, he was a libertarian. The smartest guy in the room was dumb enough to be a libertarian for a year and a half. He's admitted it a long time ago on on air. He he actually thought Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged was a good book, and then he based his libertarianism on that. For a year and a half, it took him to realize that libertarian is basically the Scientology of politics. It's just garbage. <laughs> no, that's a great description. <laughs> and I stole that from someone. As well, he dated Ann Coulter for a while. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you know? You did know that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he and my thoughts on him, He's, you know, I, and he used to be entertaining, and you know, I could put a, put aside the smugness and the condescension. But as he's aged, he's just really gotten rotten and miserable. I just really think he's an old sexist guy. That's you know, he's, mm -hmm. he's on the side of the Trumpers now. He's an old sexist guy. He's not aging gracefully. And he's just bitter. He's just a bitter, rotten person. You know, and, I am. And, this is kind of tangential to um, what we're talking about, about the political side of Bill Maher. I just remember, you know, Jane Fonda has been uh, doing a lot of, uh, they call it Fire Drill Friday, where they protest for global uh, warming, climate crisis. And uh, I think that's why he invited her on his show. And, you know, he, she, the interview started and he looked over at her and he said, 
you're really beautiful for your age. And you could tell, you could see, you know, he starts off, you're really beautiful. And then it's, he's like, you know, for your age. And she actually sort of like started, like, like she, like her whole body just twitched because it's what started out as a very nice compliment turned into a very, 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 shall we say, left-handed compliment. Um, and you know, and I'm thinking to myself, Bill, seriously, dude. You know, yeah, what woman yeah. wants to be said, you know, for an old woman, you look really good. Well, he just did a review on the movie Barbie and Candid. And oh, during yeah. his review, he had to let everyone know that he went to see it with a woman that was 30 years younger than him. Uh-huh. So, I mean, yeah, he, he's yeah, just he's a, a creep. Yeah, One he, last he really thing. I have, a, I have a great idea for a segment for you. Okay. okay. We, we get... We get that MAGA nutcase, Scott Bale, to call no. in. He, he gives some of his MAGA talking points. You counterpoint those with truth. And what we call it is, Joni doesn't love Chachi. Oh, huh? Okay. Huh? <laughs> I like that. Thank you, my dad joke. I will take that under day. advisement. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it's a million dollar idea. I'm it's telling you. It's a million it's dollar idea. Drop. I just might not have you a million dollars. Thank you for the yeah, call. That's not much today, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Goodbye. Really? Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. Our good friend Paul is calling in from Seattle. Hey, Paul, how are you? <laughs> Fine, Joan. I, uh, I want to. Ask Ann Coulter how she managed to stay so pale and gaunt, and also uh, why she seemed so angry and negative when she had a promising and lucrative career as a fiction writer. And she said, ha ha, that's an old joke. And I said, you mean I'm not the first? <laughs> and, uh, and Alan Combs said, now, now, you two, no lover's quarrels on the air. And I said, I'll make it up. And I, I invited her. I said, how about we go out for dim sum after the show? And she said, no, thank you. I said, oh, you've already eaten this week? Ta-da. Oh, my and God. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, yeah, she's she's a, an interesting one. And I've never liked Bill Maher. I always thought he was just an angry guy. He was trying to cover it up by being funny. But to, to uh, the politics and the economy. I understand what Steve is saying, but that no matter how much the Biden administration could talk nothing about, the, uh, 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 you know, nothing but the economy and would never show up on Fox News, which is, you know, what the MAGA base listens to. And you can tell by what Rudy Julie Jolly said yesterday after <laughs> after court when he's out on the, on the sidewalk saying that. And they said, you know, are you going to apologize? Said, no, I told the truth. And. The, the reporter said, but there were no facts. He goes, you bet there are. Stay tuned. <laughs> it's like, and I'm thinking, well, I bet if there were, you would have used them in your defense, wouldn't you? <laughs> I mean, come on. But he can just say, stay tuned, because that's what the MAGA base is holding on to. And what I have discovered, or this is my, and I'd be interested to know what, what Steve thinks of this, there really was not much inflation. Because how does the third quarter report 5.2% growth, I mean, that's the third quarter, but we've had good growth all this year in a year when we were supposed to have had a recession because of inflation. 
growth means that, yeah, prices are high, but there has to be. That means if there's inflation, supplies must have been low. But apparently they weren't low because corporations report their taxes, their profits quarter to quarter. So there was enough profits to report that it was an adjusted from 4.9% growth when, it first, when the numbers for third quarter first came out up to 52 which means this was real growth. This was real money being spent in the economy. But I'll tell you what the right wing does is they preach all free market economics and how the liberals are all about socialism. But get this stunt they tried to pull for uh, in, in, in Seattle uh, a few back in uh, October. The, there's, a, I don't know, 101 Republican candidates for governor now that Jay Inslee is not running again. And they pulled this stunt at a gas station down in South King County, Southeast King County, which is very Republican. They wanted to show what the price of gas really would be. I mean, it's, it's four plus, it's $4 a gallon, four plus. Very, very, you know, could be a little bit under, depending on where you go, but about four bucks a gallon, let's say. And they said, this is what gas would be without Jay Inslee's carbon tax and all Biden's taxes. And so they took all the taxes off and ran a special from from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. at this particular gas station to show how you're being overtaxed. And I don't know what the actual pump price was, but the line was, you know, around the block, right? And this was the deal. But here's the, here, here's the deal. If, this, if it's the free market, well, what would the price of gasoline be if there were no taxes on it? It wouldn't be, you know, two ninety five a gallon because – Guess what? The demand was around the block, which means the price goes up. And even without the taxes, it would be four bucks a gallon. It doesn't matter. It's only the fact the taxes are our share, the people's share of the profits. The people don't understand that. The, tax, the price of gasoline, wherever you are in California, it's sometimes approaching seven dollars. It's what the market will bear. Mm-hmm. And the, the gasoline prices have gone up because. People will pay those prices. It's not because of the taxes. The taxes, it doesn't matter how many people, how many parties have a share in that price. It doesn't matter. It's what the market will bear. I'm always interested, you know, like it'll be announced in the paper that, you know, OPEC is going to raise the price of a barrel of oil. And the very next day, you'll see higher gas prices. Like somehow (laughs) that proposed uh, price increase has already worked its way through the system, and now you have to pay more. That always struck me as a little odd. And people don't understand that high taxes on gasoline are actually, actually, first of all, because there's a certain market, uh, a, a, a certain point that the market will bear, if you just sort of, throw a slug a bunch of taxes on it, that's, that's we the people taking that out. That means the oil companies, if they want to sell it and meet, and meet that, uh, that sweet spot, they're going to have to drop their percentage of it because if it's overpriced, then they'll lose demand. This, mm-hmm. they, see, they keep trying to tell people that it's a, it's a free market, but they also keep trying to tell people that, uh, that uh, the, the, sort of the liberals set the price. When, and that's what I mean. When they took the taxes off, by the way, this Republican candidate had to pay the taxes. He probably through some campaign donations paid. That's why it was only a four hour special. He paid the taxes on all the gasoline for a period of four hours. 
but the line was around the block. Now, what would happen if that was forever? The line would be around the block forever and ever, and they would be out of gasoline. Then you really have a problem. Then the price of gasoline would be sky high, right? Because oh, guess I'm, what? I'm old enough to remember when we did have a gas shortage and there yep. were lines yep. around the block and the stations yep. did run out of gas and people had to go yeah. home. And then they would line up at 6 a.m. the next day. At, yeah, in 74. I know. Mm-hmm. That was the, yeah, I, I also remember that. But the MAGA base is, look, let's face it, the MAGA base has a collective IQ of a single fence post. So <laughs> that's what we're dealing with here. Well, they don't operate on intellect. They operate on vibe, as I was talking earlier with somebody, with how yeah. somebody, how a candidate makes them feel, which is, I believe, why they're the core group surrounding Donald Trump will never leave him. It's not about right. policies. It's not about ideas. It's about the way he makes them feel. I mean, you know. And you know what? When go you, ahead. Joan, when I talk to conservatives, uh, talk show hosts about the numbers. They say, oh, well, you know, that's all fine on paper, but that's not how the way people feel. And I say, what do you want Joe Biden to do about what they feel? He can only deal with data. The president <laughs> can only deal with data. He can't yeah. deal with how every other guy feels about it, right? Right. And whenever I see an interview um, with somebody, usually somebody at a Trump rally, and they're like, he cares about us. He's going to take care of us. He's, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, have you paid attention to this guy? Uh, Seriously, (laughs) have 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 you looked into this guy? This guy is the least likely. I mean, even back in, um, Back in 2016 and again in 2020, I remember, you know, because I talked to all these trade union leaders and they admitted that um, a a surprising number of their members were leaning towards Trump because somehow this guy who lived in a a condo with a golden toilet, they felt he was a he, he connected with them as a blue collar guy, which was one of Donald Trump's. Um, most incredible magic acts right then and there. Um, uh, Paul, I just realized that we've got to get to the news. Sure. Uh, thank you for the call. Thanks. We are going to continue to take calls and read your texts right after the news. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. It's Friday. We spend the first half of every Friday taking your calls and talking about the news stories that you found interesting. And uh, let's get right back to it. Ron is calling from Chicago. Hey, Ron. Thanks for the call. Yes. uh, Jane Fonda turned 86 this week. uh, God love her. (laughs) And her given name is Lady Jane Seymour Fonda. Ooh. (laughs) Yes, but uh, the uh, the Republicans uh, will not agree to aid to the re- Ukraine until uh, we return to the uh, immigration policy of uh, separating the parents from their children and then putting the children in concentration camps like under Trump. Well, they certainly didn't seem to have any problem with that when it was happening. Um, yeah. But, you know, they really it's one thing, you know, and and. Even the Associated Press uh, uh, yesterday or the day before said that um, that they didn't reach an agreement on immigration 
because of a funding issue. It's the 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 stumbling block is not funding. President Biden has I don't know why AP said that the President Biden has already agreed to more funding for this whole issue. I mean, he knows more funding is is needed, you know, but they want to basically end asylum. They want to I mean, they really want some very draconian measures. And it's it's a little unclear just how much negotiating they're willing to do on those measures. So it's um, it's going to be um, it's going to be tricky. Yeah, the uh, Republicans don't want the uh, migrants here because later on they're, they're going to vote for Democrats and the Republicans don't want this. They don't, huh. want, to, they don't want any, uh, any changes to their power structure. And, well, I uh, don't understand. Uh, you know, I was talking to uh, Kate Gold. Um, what is, oh my God, I just blinked on her name. Kate uh, Goldfinch. Um, yesterday and um, Lincoln Goldfinch, she's hyphenated. And she said that, you know, I speak to groups all the time and there's this somehow this sense that somehow um, uh, immigration takes away, takes away jobs, takes away resources, costs us money. And she said, I've got the data. I can I can refute all of that. You know, uh, what what immigration adds to the economy and how desperately we need these people. Um, but it's a tough sell, yeah. data or no. Yeah. And one more thing with the TV producer Norman Lear, who passed away recently. Uh, yeah. Yeah, before, uh, before All in the Family came to TV uh, in the 1950s and 60s, uh, a uh, married uh, woman on TV was... Uh, a happy housewife who spent yep. most of her time in the kitchen, never arguing with her husband, and uh, was given a weekly allowance by her husband. And they, she had no no problems. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, well, I believe it was uh, not till the early 70s that women got a lot of uh, financial power. I remember once I was... I was shopping at a Sears store, um, but this was this was in the this would have been in the 80s or the 90s and uh, probably the 90s. And I was shopping at a Sears store in Mexico and I had bought a bunch of stuff and I'm standing by the register and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and the clerk is kind of just standing around. And I and I finally said, um, is there a problem? And the clerk looked at me and said, oh, I'm I'm waiting for your husband. And I'm like, the credit card is in my name. I'm buying this stuff. And the clerk was like, oh, OK. Didn't say a word to me. Oh, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for your husband, because, of course, he's going to be the one to pay for everything. Not you. He's going to be the one that has the credit card. Not you. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is still going on. And uh, Norman Lair, he took his idea for All in the Family first to ABC Network, and they did a pilot episode, and after six months, the executives at ABC told him, uh, no, we're not interested. So he went to CBS and became rich and famous. Wow. <laughs> you know, I wonder when something like that happens, Ron, the original executives who turned down what? a show that later went somewhere else and became a huge hit. I wonder if there's any repercussions for those people, you know? 
Never know. I'm sure there is. (laughs) I hope so. Anyway, thanks so much for the call. I appreciate it. Um, Let's go back to the phone lines. Uh, Tom is calling in from Tinley Park. Hello, Tom. Thanks for the call today. Thanks for taking my call. I I wanted to call you on the uh, oil and uh, gasoline and uh, situation and how, how it affects with just with a few clicks that could affect our economy. And uh, I tell you what, uh, I, uh, back in the day, uh, I was an inspector at one of the major companies in, in QC. And a lot of times I got the pressure on me to sign off on things that I wasn't going to sign off on because it was all about the bottom line, their bottom line, not safety. Mm-hmm. And if something happened, if something happened, would be on, I would be the first one to be going in, you know, to court or, or yes. losing my job or or who, going to jail, whatever. But that's just how these people manipulate, just like you were just saying before, hey, I'm going to take care of you. But yet if these brain stems need to look around and say, hey, how is he going to take care of me if he throws his own minions under the bus? Yes. But get, getting back to oil... Um, it, it never should have been. There, there were so many times in the last several years when oil was around $70 a barrel. It should not have been around $5 a gallon. We were getting gouged. Another thing, back in the day, Richard Nixon, who a lot of people like to vilify, but he did have some good ideas, and he was he knew right from wrong, and, and, and he did have some contrition at, at some point, mm-hmm. and he wasn't a, a draft dodger. He, he was... Uh, in in Midway, uh, in and around the Battle of Midway, uh, in the Navy. So, you know, but but anyway, but getting back to oil, he came up with the, with the just in our prices started towards the end of his, his uh, regime. Uh, he did not allow our oil companies to export our oil, which at one point, this still happens now. Now all of a sudden it's happening again. You you hear these brain stems saying, drill, baby, drill. Well, guess what? 30% of our domestic product goes on the spot market. So what does that do for us? It just, it, what it's does ridiculous. that mean, goes on the spot market? I don't understand it goes that. On the, it goes on the spot market. It's sold elsewhere. In other words, we don't have we, what's produced here. We don't use it. Goes into the spot market, which they make money more money at, and then mm-hmm. our prices go. So if if a lot of our companies were were not allowed to take and export our domestic product, our prices would be lower. But that's the big you know secret that they don't want us to know. Interesting. Interesting. When you were an inspector, what exactly did you inspect? Well, I, I, I would I'd rather not like okay. uh, All right. mechanical mechanical uh, mechanical systems. Gotcha. Mechanical systems. All righty. Well, thank you for sharing your expertise with us. Sure. I really appreciate the sure. call, Tom. Sure. Take care. Thanks very much. Um, let's see. Um, I think we have time for another call before we go to a break. Let's go to David, who is calling in from San Francisco. Hello, David. How are you today? Well, hi, Joan. Uh, yeah, I hope you're going to have a good holiday. Um, you know, when when Trump got started, uh, what's going on eight years ago, I was trying to get uh, 
you know, like uh, WCPT plays Stephanie Miller. And when you listen to her show, she knows a whole bunch of people in the in the talent in- industry. And so if you realize that when Trump came down the escalator, uh, he paid for that audience. Everybody in there was paid 50 bucks a day uh, to applaud for him and pretend to be supporters. And when you see the first people that endorsed him, uh, there was Don King, the boxing promoter. There were a bunch of different boxers and sports figures uh, who um, basically would come to uh, – I'm not sure if he had Mar-a-Lago at the time, but he he was basic. Trump had some – some theater, uh, theatrical uh, events, and he would pay uh, those uh, boxers or sports figures to come and and uh, pretend to like him. So yeah. it was pretty obvious that that he was buying or just paying for supporters. And when you when you know people like Don King, the guy was like organized crime, and doing money laundering uh, was probably a major part of it. And I would expect that some of the sports figures that were uh, uh, paid to show up at his events were also involved in money laundering. So I would bet that the hiring halls, the theatrical booking agencies that would hire these uh, uh, supporters, pay them 50 bucks a day, uh, were also, uh, let's say, sketchy. And I would bet that for the entire four years that Trump was in office, uh, the people that were showing up at his events, even during COVID, were hired talent. And what was the nature of their being hired? And I would bet that there'd be a big part of it was, if you remember the subprime scandal, 2008, 40 million evictions happened in America. 40 million people lost their houses and somebody snapped them up. And if you paid attention to that, uh, snapping them up, they were, uh, deeds were sold in bundles, 10, 20,000 deeds in one bundle and mysterious money to mysterious corporations. So that I would bet that the people that were uh, brought into his audience, even during the worst of COVID, were allowed free rent or they were given sort of air. Well, you know, I'd like to believe that uh, you would have to pay people to show up in the audience for Donald Trump. But sadly, David, I think that there are a lot of people who have simply bought what Donald Trump is selling. And I don't really I don't really know about any of the other money laundering charges you mentioned. The only the only money laundering investigation. I know for a while there was an investigation into Deutsche Bank, which provided a lot of the loans for Donald Trump. Supposedly, the 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 rumor was that the Russian government was providing the money to Deutsche Bank so that they could provide the money to Trump and that, you know, that's they were using him and Deutsche Bank to launder money. But, you know, that's the only money laundering that I can remember reading about. And, you know, I'd love I'd love to believe that Donald Trump needs to pay people to show up. But sadly, I'm afraid that I think they just show up. Well, again, and and by the way, when you're talking Deutsche Bank, you remember that was Supreme Court Justice Kennedy's son that was facilitating those uh, the transfers of that money. Yeah, you got a good memory uh, there. That's true. 
Oh, yeah, and Supreme Court Justice Kennedy was the one that suddenly resigned so that, uh, I'm trying to remember if it was Gorsuch that came in, you know, the first of the Supreme Court justices that Trump brought in. But the uh, the, the money laundering has happened for years. If you remember, Donald Trump worked with uh, Roy Cohn, C-O-H-N, not Michael Cohn, but Roy Cohn. And Roy Cohn was the lawyer for all of the mob families in New York City. Donald Trump palled around with him for the last 14 years of his life. Oh, yeah. Roy Cohn taught him everything about, you know, never admit they are wrong, you know, never do this. You know, oh, yeah, he uh, Roy Cohn taught Donald Trump a lot of the tricks um, that he has used. Yeah, money laundering through the hotels. If you remember what happened in Washington, D.C. with the old post office that was turned into a hotel, and that all of a sudden, while Trump is is president, that hotel has uh, Saudi princes that book the penthouse for a month at a time and never show up. And so it becomes an outright bribe to Trump to give uh, all sorts of favors. So uh, Trump has been doing money laundering for years. And, and if you all the way back 100 years, when you read about Mata Hari and where she would go, the famous hotels in Paris and whatnot were famous money laundering operations and, and spying operations and whatnot. So when Trump comes up with Trump Towers, you know, some of the earliest articles about uh, when the Secret Service were uh, asked to start guarding Trump, Trump didn't want them to come into Trump into Trump Towers because it was such a, uh, a mire of, I, I think, two-thirds of the, the tenants were organized crime figures, that there was a casino immediately underneath Trump's uh, bedroom. No, I figure Trump was, was brought in by, uh, by PR agents. And that they basically, they didn't even expect him to win. They just were going to be using it as a money laundering operation. And that once he did win, uh, it became a trap because so many of the spies of the world were were trapped by... Um, if you really, you know, again, back to something like Mata Hari and the, and the sources of information, uh, who were the insiders who were uh, uh, facilitating uh, Trump in, in this and aspect? David, I've got to study. jump in here for uh, a minute. I'm, uh, I appreciate the call and the conversation. I'm going to have to cut this short because there is a sure. the jury has reached a verdict in uh, the defamation trial where. Rudy Giuliani uh, defamed two women involved in uh, the accusing them of of uh, fixing the election for Joe Biden and stealing it from Donald Trump. He was found guilty of defamation before. Um, the jury now is deciding on the amount of money. And it appears, according to CNN's reporting, that Ruby Freeman gets $16 million uh, for emotional distress. Shea Moss gets $16 million for emotional distress. And, um, and then on top of that, $75 million in punitive damages. This is, uh, this is staggering. Uh, this is absolutely staggering and a much higher dollar figure 
than was predicted in this case. Um, we're going to take a real quick break. We're going to get back to our conversation and our phone calls right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. As I said, a jury has decided the amount of money that Rudy Giuliani needs to pay to um, compensate <sighs> Shea Boss and Ruby Freeman for defaming them. And it is over $100 million. Over $100 million. Um, whether or not this will hold up on appeal is anybody's guess. Uh, but this is this is staggering. This is absolutely this is absolutely breathtaking. Now, the question of um, does Rudy Giuliani have any money? Uh, that's another question. But the dollar figure here is breathtaking, is absolutely breathtaking. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. It is Friday. We are talking about the news of the day and uh, whatever stories caught your eye. Let's go to the phone lines. Roosevelt is on the line. Hey, Roosevelt, how are you? Hey, uh, Joel, thank you for taking my call. Merry Christmas. Have a wonderful weekend and enjoy. Thank you. You too. Oh, uh, several things I wanted to touch upon uh, you covered. And when we asked for two specifics, first thing I want to say about what you said about Mexico, you don't have to worry about that anymore because we're going to have the first woman president in the history of Mexico's. I've been uh, following that. Uh, it does look like she's got a real solid shot. So we flipped. What the United States used to always say, how uh, Mexico's always backwards, it's, a, it's an old-fashioned country, and then we went to the forefront as far as beating the United States, now I'm talking as a Mexican, uh, beating the United States to, to the punch as far as having the first woman president, unless something happens. But also, let's not forget that Mexico, a wonderful president that we have down there in Mexico, uh, there's a... Uh, the opposite of the United States as far as abortion. No, there's another one. So we kind of flipped. The United States is going backwards and the Mexico is going forward in history. Uh, huh. two, two specifics. One, you mentioned the, uh, Giuliani. You mentioned that it's, what is it, seven, 16 million per, per lady? That's yeah, 16.1 for Ruby, just under 17 for Shea, and then something like 40-something each in punitive damages. Uh, it oh, comes oh. to a total, a total figure of $148 million. Total. I, I didn't understand what you, I didn't understand what you meant. Yeah, by there's, a, there's emotional. Million. There's you get you get a certain amount of compensation for emotional damages, and then a certain amount of compensation just to punish you to make sure you never do anything like this again. A hundred and forty-eight million uh, is what uh, Rudy Giuliani has been uh, has been asked to pay. Uh, it's just I, I don't know. I, I knew that it would. I suspected it would be a big figure. I did not suspect 
that um, they were they were seeking forty seven million dollars in damages. They got one hundred and forty eight million dollars in damages. Clearly, uh, Rudy, not making a great impression on this jury. Yeah. Um, Now, the reasons why I called. When it comes down to this money for Ukraine, is it just Ukraine? I have several uh, questions about the money. There's an aid package. No, there's there's an aid package that Democrats wanted to do it all together, which is money for Taiwan, money for Israel, and money for Ukraine. Although Uh, Republicans in Congress are saying, oh, that they want to split it all off and do it one at a time. Okay. Now, while we're on the subject, specifically, the money that they, meaning the Republicans, want for the border, specifically, is it, are we back to the wall thing again? Do they want money for the wall? Or what yeah, that's one of the things want? that they want. And, you know, Biden has even said oh, he doesn't okay. care about the wall. Everybody realizes, uh, all the experts say the wall doesn't do anything. How many videos have you seen of people digging under the wall, climbing over the wall, finding cracks in the wall? But... You know, Republicans are set on it. And Biden says, you know, he just doesn't really care. Uh, So, you know, but but a lot of the stuff they want is they want to really they want to change the whole system by which somebody can claim for asylum. They want to put a cap on the number of people who can apply for some of this. They they want a lot of laws like um, the lawyer I was talking to yesterday said that, like, if you're in Venezuela and you're working your way up to the United States, they want a law that says in every country you pass through, you have to apply for asylum. And if you don't do that, you can't apply for asylum when you get to the United States, which is just um, in, even in the United States, the paperwork to do anything to get a work permit takes over a month. So this is really just them trying to. Uh, clamp down, get rid of any kind of immigration. Roosevelt, I'm, I'm sorry uh, to cut you off. We're uh, over time here. Uh, Got to get to a commercial break. Uh, but thank you for calling. I always appreciate when you, when you join the conversation. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Uh, We are welcoming back a friend of ours who uh, ran for mayor for the city of Chicago. Paul Vallis is here. Hello, Paul. How are you doing today? Hi. I'm great, Joan. How are you? I'm good. Or maybe I should say Grandpa Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's amazing. It's just the greatest feeling in the world. Uh, My... my, uh, my son sent me pictures. He discussed, I think he wants to be uh, one of the Walendas because he now has this habit of climbing on this the little chair in his room and then diving off. Uh, he's oh. pushing, <laughs> and then laughing and then laughing about it and then climbing back on again. So it's like, where did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> he's a risk taker. Anyway, congratulations yeah. on that. I'm glad that you're having a good time being a grandparent. I have to. Um, well, it isn't quite uh, a victory, but, you know, you and I used to get grief from the audience because we talked about lead pipes, lead water pipes so often. I remember people used to text me and they'd say, like, what are you two, the lead pipe duo? Um, because it was a, it is a problem. It's been a problem. And the city of Chicago had seemed unwilling or unable to do anything to fix the problem. Now, um, the Environmental Prote- Protection Agency 
has decided to take up the mantle of this problem, saying, hey, you know what? In communities where they have lead pipes, they really got to either get the pipes replaced or get the pipes relined. This is untenable. But even in that, I was talking to Michael Hawthorne, who's the environmental reporter for the Trib, and uh, he said that even with the statements from the EPA, that Chicago, rather than being given 10 years to fix the problem, that they were going to make an exception for Chicago and give Chicago as much as 50 years or 40 yeah. years to fix the problem. And I was like, okay, that doesn't make any sense. Um, I you know, know this is something that you've been writing about. Um, what are your thoughts on what's going on? Well, look, uh, these are the facts. Fact number one is no amount of lead in the water is safe, particularly for children. And, and the research is now irrefutable that there is a direct link between violence and uh, and and lead and lead poisoning, uh, and all the studies have pointed to this, uh, you know, to, to drawing comparisons between like, um, you know, the uh, the period when lead we had leaded gas and then we had unleaded gas and 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 the rise and falls of uh, violent crime rates across the country like like uh, like ten fifteen years later and 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 vice versa. So so the bottom line is is no amount of lead is safe. Number the, the second point to make is that. Even if they move at an accelerated pace uh, and they got the place replaced in 10 years, which they're not going to be able to do, the money that they allocated, that the federal government allocated uh, by the city's estimate, uh, combined with the money they're going to raise, will pay for the replacements of about only about 78 percent of the lead pipes. Uh, and and uh, and and look, uh, uh, the uh, you know, you know, even if you accept the criticism that they're paying way too much for the replacements. We're talking about decades. So you've got to deal with the problem now. And the way to deal with that problem now is to get water filtration systems into people's houses, into the restaurants, into the, into the uh, daycare centers. Uh, you know what I mean? That's what you need to do. That's what Newark did. Newark not only replaced all their lead pipes, but they provided water filters. And while, the the, part, the water department uh, provides, you know, you can call in and make an appointment, and they'll test your water, and then they'll, they'll give you a water filter. They, there needs to be a concerted, aggressive effort to go out there and to inform people about what's going on and then to give them the water filters. Because there is not only the problem of lead contamination, but there's also the problem, and Michael Hawthorne has written about this, they're called forever chemicals. These yeah. are these cancer-causing chemicals that are in the water that are, you know, that will remain in the water even once you replace all the lead pipes. So, so and remain gotta, in our bodies once we ingest forever, them forever. Forever. So, so you've got to. So even if even if they replace all the lead pipes tomorrow, you would still have these other cancer-causing mm-hmm. agents. So, you have the water filters. They have the money to do it. There's still COVID money that can be dedicated towards that. As you know, the uh, 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 the Biden administration, most appropriately and responsibly, allocated money specifically for lead abatement that could include purchasing these devices. When you consider that by the 
by the water department's estimated costs like 30000 to to replace every line. Some have argued that it shouldn't cost more than five or 6000 Getting a water filtration system, sometimes the really good systems, you can do for for in the hundreds of dollars. So, so Yeah, think- and there are, um, even though PFAS, which are the forever chemicals, yeah. even though um, they're a fairly recent uh, discovery as, uh, as a problem for us, I know that in the, my years of talking with Michael Hawthorne, uh, I went out and bought, uh, I've always used a water filter in, you know, a pitcher in the refrigerator, but uh, most of them don't screen for forever chemicals. And uh, Michael Hawthorne said, you know, I don't, I, I don't have any money in the company. I don't get anything out of this. But there's a company called Zero, uh, and their yep. filters pull yep. out the PFAS. Uh, so I've had a, for the last couple of years, I've had a Zero filter in my refrigerator. So the technology is out there, is out there. Somebody, you know, we've we've never had a water department, Paul, that seemed capable or competent on this issue. And I've never been able to figure out, I've never been able to figure out why, if it's, uh, you know, whether they're just... Um, there's too much bureaucracy or, or, or what. They know there's a problem. They know the different ways to address the problem. And yet, and yet I, you and I saw this during the entire Lightfoot administration. It was like, well, uh, we don't, um, we don't know, uh, we, we, we ha- can't find contractors who know how to do the work. We, we're not yeah. sure which technique is the best. And yes, water filters are available. If you go online, fill out an application and then, and then wait six months to get it. I mean, it just, it's like, I don't understand. Why it is so hard, you know? Also, you, they won't. Also, they won't. They won't give you a water filter. I don't think. Please, somebody call in if I'm wrong. If, if you like meet these uh, the uh, EPA standards, and of course the C, the CDC or uh, basically says there's no safe levels of lead, um, but the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, you know. It sets like a minimum level. So the bottom line is, you know, they uh, they'll say, well, if you test above that level, we'll give you a free water filter. But if you don't, uh, then we won't. Even though you have lead in the water, and any amount of lead does damage. There is this. It's 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 the data cannot be contested. It's it's just a fact. So anyway, but we well, but look, we've been talking about this issue. My God, for. The better part of like four years, uh, yeah. known, and I, and we have the means to get these water filters in the hands of people right now. We need to be mobilizing through the schools, and you know I think the problem with the water department uh, uh, is, and, and I'm not here to discourage anyone. Is I think they, they are a lot of people in the department. Well, first of all, it begins with leadership. You know, if you have the right leadership that said this is our number one priority, this is our top priority to make sure that the water is clean. we got water filters. They made it a priority. It's the administration made it a priority. It could get done. But I also think there's there's this idea to say, well, our water is good. You know, we've always said Chicago's got the best water in the world. And so I, I think there's this tendency on the part of, of some people there to be very defensive and to almost be in denial that there's a problem. And I think that's part of it, too. It's like it's this mentality that Chicago's always had this great water when it, when it really hasn't. 
Well, you know, it's interesting. What's I've got the book here. Just uh, last week, I talked to the author of a book called Water for All. He's uh, he's a professor at like uh, UC Berkeley, and he writes uh, entirely about water. And I was questioning him because, you know, uh, one of his solutions for um, helping, especially uh, areas of the world that have real water shortages, is treating and reusing wastewater, using it to fertilize mm-hmm. crops and cleaning it up and using it for drinking water. And I said to him, I was like, you know, I'm not so sure that's an idea I feel comfortable with. And he said, Joan, he said, I know you think, especially in the Chicago area, you think you have great water. But I'm telling you, if we did an analysis, what kinds of minerals are there that you don't realize? What kinds of I remember when when Wisconsin had that cryptosporidium outbreak. And especially babies and the elderly were getting really sick because the water filtration plant didn't screen for cryptosporidium. And he said, I think that if I did an analysis of the water that's coming out of your tap, you would be thrilled to drink instead wastewater that had been treated to make it clean. Well, you know, the water filters will get rid of 99 percent of the impurities as Mr. Hawthorne has pointed out. So we have the means, we have the technology, just do it. You know, uh, insofar as threats to children, uh, the lead in the water, uh, the dangers, the healthcare dangers, dwarf uh, any of the threats that, that children were facing uh, during the COVID pandemic. And yet they're ignored. I, it should be a priority through the schools. Mm-hmm. We should distribute, you know, we should distribute the filters through the schools. We certainly, we certainly have the financial resources to do it. We can certainly tap into a fraction of the federal money that they, that they're allocating for pipe replacement could easily be used to purchase water filters for everybody. Um, we need to take a break, Paul. I, I'm okay. sure you've been, I know you've written about, um, you know, the whole, the mayor's whole plan, bring home Chicago to address housing needs. Now on top of that, you know, there's this, never-ending uh, plan to bring housing to migrants on top of the unhoused and on top of those who need affordable housing. And there's been, especially from Crane's Chicago business, there's been a there's been a, a pretty decent amount of criticism from the mayor. Heck, I mean, he practically got rebuked from uh, J.B. Pritzker, uh, who said, you know what, you can't put a tenth city on land that is toxic. Yeah. yeah. So I want to talk about, you know, you wanted to be mayor of Chicago, just as Lori Lightfoot was hit with COVID. Um, we've been hit with these buses of Venezuelan migrants that we do not have the infrastructure to absorb the way we absorb all the migrants coming from Ukraine. I want to talk about uh, what you wrote in your op-ed and uh, more about this issue when Paul Vallis okay. and I come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We have, um, by some estimates, about 20,000 migrants uh, from Venezuela in Chicago. And unlike the 30,000 immigrants from Ukraine, there isn't a community, there aren't uh, social structures, there isn't infrastructure to absorb these people and find them housing and find them jobs and have them 
uh, fit into the community. Uh, the Venezuelans are the ones who have been stuck in tents on the floors of police stations at uh, shelters. And the question has been, what are we going to do? How are we going to house these people? How are we going to get these people services? How are we going to help these people get the job permits that allow them to work? And I was talking, I don't know if you know her, Paul. Earlier this week, I was talking with Reverend Beth Brown from Lincoln Park Presbyterian. Lincoln Park Presbyterian Church has been front and center, along with Catholic Charities, trying to help out these migrants, trying to either find them housing or put them with families, trying to have somebody get them through all the paperwork, make all their court dates, help them find the kind of employment that allows them to pay their rent on time. But uh, Reverend Beth Brown was a little frustrated because she seemed to feel that the current administration wasn't really tapping the expertise of people like her and the people at Catholic Charities who are really on the ground doing this work every every day. I mean, there was that these insulated tents that the city was going to put up on land that everybody knew was contaminated. The city of Chicago did some tests. Uh, they said, oh, it's going to be OK. You know, we'll just make sure that there's like a plastic floor. And Governor Pritzker's office stepped in and they were like, A, we don't think you did the right tests. You didn't do enough tests. And we think that this is not a place for human habitation. And they basically pulled the plug on it. Now, Crane's Chicago Business is reporting that there are being contracts signed for brick and mortar facilities. But the current administration is being very opaque as to how these people are being, how these facilities are being chosen, who's being paid what, and how the whole process is working. Now, talk to me about what you have written about this. I know you mostly focused on the Bring Chicago Home and that tax increase, but this this whole situation has gotten a little bit bigger than that. Uh, no, give I me your actually, thoughts. I actually, I actually did a piece on the migrant issue about actually about four or five months ago. And and you know, first of all, let me make a couple observations. Uh, clearly, clearly, there is a lack of coordination. And, you know, I had done a piece talking about the need for the governor to, to do what he did during the COVID crisis, which is to use that executive power to, like, go in and, and move people aside and to get things done. And, and I'm glad he is responding because clearly the city was falling short. But, but let me make a couple points. Um, first of all, we have got to have a strategy to deter additional migrants from coming. And this whole idea that we could allow, we could have one state literally spend their own taxpayer money to transport 20,000 migrants to not just our state, but to our city without any repercussions. It's just, it's just unacceptable. One of the things I want to ask you, because one idea that the city had that I, I, the city council was supposed to vote on, if they haven't already very soon, is this idea of uh, taking the bus companies to court and 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 suing the bus companies that are that are being hired to deliver the migrants. I think the thinking is if the companies that own the buses are afraid of any legal repercussions in Chicago, maybe the flow will be shut down. What do you think about that? Well, one of the things that I proposed a number of months ago was 
to not only find the bus companies, but to confiscate their buses. That's number one. That, that will make it very difficult. Our very, bus companies very reluctant to be shipping people because this is really human trafficking. And then the second thing is have the guts to intercept the buses and to send some buses back after pro- uh, providing the appropriate accommodations. I mean, because if they're coming and we know they're coming, uh, you know, they're just coming, they're just showing up and the people are being dumped out. And you, you do a few of those and Abbott won't send anymore. So the bottom line is we've got to get, we've got to be able to manage the influx because you know, I was talking, I was talking to some, uh, uh, to one of my, uh, uh, former partners who I worked with in Haiti and in Carol in North Carolina and they don't have any immigrant issues there. I mean, the bottom line is clearly if they're targeting us, then just don't, don't take it on the chin. So, so this doesn't mean we don't want to be a welcoming city, but what it means is at some point they're engaging in human trafficking and, and uh, both the federal government as well as ourselves have got to say, you know what, we're going to start sending people back. Uh, the second thing we have to do is stop using, on the one hand, we say we're a sanctuary city and, and uh, we're not going to cooperate with ICE or whatever. But then on the other hand, we say, oh, my God, we can't give people work permits because the federal government hasn't uh, certified them yet. That's hogwash. The point is, we should clear these people so that they can work, so that they can get, so that they can get jobs. Because you know, I, I was looking at an analysis that said that about ten thousand of migrants right now could easily work if they could get their work permits. So you give them temporary work permits, or you give them temporary licenses, so that they can open their you know vendor licenses. You know, and then you wait for a final approval. So those are two things that we could do to slow to slow uh, the influx of new migrants uh, because uh, the overwhelming vast majority of them are being deliberately shipped ship, ship to the city. And then the second thing is obviously expedite the process. Take control. Use our sanctuary city home rule power to say, we're going to give you a, a, a work permit so you can go work at the local restaurant, things like that. The restaurant mm-hmm. industry is telling you they're, they're desperate for workers right now. So those are two things we could do. Uh, and, and, and I'll be more happy to talk about some of my other recommendations, but you've got to get people into the workforce as quickly as possible, and you've got to somehow get control of the influx. Yeah, and um, one of the things that um, people are very confused about is um, what does it mean to be a sanctuary city? Like, uh, you know, when there was calls for a resolution or, or, you know, a fresh resolution in the city council or debate, I think people think that because we have called ourselves a sanctuary city, that that means, oh, just anybody, you know, bring your buses. Fine. We're a sanctuary city. And that's technically uh, on the books, not what it means. It simply means that the city of Chicago has decided that our cops are not going to turn people over to ICE. Our police force is not going to be ICE surrogates. That's all it means. People have this idea that somehow, well, you know, if we weren't a sanctuary city, these buses wouldn't be showing up. No, that's not true. Greg Abbott is um, not only still sending buses, but Paul, you and I both know that as the DNC, the Democratic National Convention, gets closer, Greg Abbott is going to step this up. Um, we absolutely have to figure out not only how to help these people, but also how to. I don't understand why anybody hasn't charged him with human trafficking. I agree with you. This is human trafficking. Where That's right. 
Is, is this the kind of charges that Kwame Raul should be bringing? That's right. And look, look, clearly Texas has challenges. You know, my son is a police officer in San Antonio, and his, his wife, her parents uh, live on a border town. And, and half the people in their border town are, are, are illegal migrants. So clearly they're overwhelmed. But the bottom line is they're, sending, they're deliberately sending them to select cities. So when people say, well, they're doing this, they're trying to embarrass us or whatever the DNC, well, yeah, that's happening. But so what are you going to do about it? You're going to let them continue to do that? I mean, I'd be screaming at the Biden administration because, you know, I mean, there used to be a time when presidents, uh, you know, put southern governors in their place when they defied federal law. I mean, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's important for the federal government not only to protect the border and secure the border, but also to protect against human trafficking. But we've got to be prepared to say we're going to start sending buses back. And once you've done a few of those, once you've done a few of those, you know, believe me, they won't be sending any more. I also think that there's things we could do besides getting them processed so that they can go out there and work so we can get them, uh, and you know, uh, the, uh, the, uh, so we can allow them to get the job they need so they're not, uh, you know, dependent on, on governmental services. But, you know, look... Uh, you know, in my post or in my op-ed, I talk about the, 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 the thousands and thousands of vacant residential properties that are out there in housing court or tax court or whatever that are vacant, that are sitting idle. The fact that you have a lot of – you have 50 National Guard armories across the state, 50 and I, well, and, and, and was I, it, I don't know, was it the Sun-Times or the Trib or Block Club? I think it was Block Club uh, started going around and showing all these houses that were vacant, that were owned by the CHA, CHA. that were CHA, falling CHA, into disrepair. CHA. You know, people were a dr- a druggies exactly. were taking over because these That's houses right. are sitting vacant and the people in the neighborhoods don't like that. You know, how much... You know, rather than renting a, a commercial office building and trying to rehab it, you know, here's a house, for God's sake. Well, the most recent HUD report, and, and I, I put this in my earlier op-ed piece, I'll send it to you, indicated that in Chicago, 10% of the residential units, whether they're homes or apartments, are in effect vacant. They're unoccupied for a variety of reasons. The bottom line is there's there's... There are. They should have been inventorying. You know, they should have been identifying mm-hmm. uh, uh, available housing. They should have been looking at the mental health centers that they shut down that already have residential that already have residential facilities. You know, not to mention the National Guard armories, the big mega, mega na- National Guard armories that, that I spent many a drill <laughs> that I spent many a drill sleeping in. You know, so it's not like you know they they have kitchens and everything like that. So there's no reason. And, you know, I felt, and I did this in my op-ed piece, I, I did a map where I showed where all the National Guard armories are at, and they lined the interstate. They lined the interstate from 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 Cairo to Litchfield to Effingham to Urbana all the way up. And, you know, why couldn't why couldn't the buses be intercepted at certain designated points to people evaluated, processed, decisions uh, mm-hmm. to be made? Uh, coordinating which which buses our individuals go on or which are sent back. I mean, National Guard. I mean, we we activate them for national emergencies. You know what I mean? That, that that's an appropriate use of the guard. So I mean, again, we have assets, but we're not using those assets properly. But I can't stress enough: we've got to somehow control the influx of of new 
migrants besides getting them integrated into the economy fast enough. Because, I mean, I'm stunned at these statistics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the state is now saying that by the end of the year, they will have spent, what is that, like $800 million? And the city will have spent like $160 million and anticipate uh, spending close to $330 million with the money they put in this year's budget. So we're talking about well over, well over a billion dollars. Meanwhile, meanwhile, there's only 150 beds for, for, for women and children who are the victims of domestic violence. On any given night, there's 150 beds because there's no place to house them safely. Uh, they're only opening two of the promised mental health centers. Uh, I think in the mayor's budget, only $26 million in new spending on programs for the south and west sides. I mean, clearly, this is a tremendous expenditure of resources. That yeah. And this isn't fitting. I'm not trying to pit the migrant community against that. This is not what it's about. But we got to get control of the situation. And, and, and But it, it has to begin with controlling the influx of, of, of new migrants and then removing the obstacles for them to go to work. Paul, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, we've got to get to news. Um, Paul Vallis, uh, you can read his op-eds oftentimes in the Tribune. Uh, we, he is also going to be joining me from time to time to share some of those op-eds with us. Thanks, Paul. Really appreciate it. Have a happy holiday. You too. Thank you so much. And then thank you to your listeners. We're going to break for news and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Those of you who are regular listeners know that every time a holiday is coming up, I get Shelly Young from the chopping block to join us to try to walk us through how we can have an incredible meal and look really wonderful. And Shelly and I have been exchanging emails on this. And one of the things that I loved is at the end of this long email about all the different things we could talk about today that people can make. She said, if you can't cook, decorate like a madman. And that's what I'm doing this holiday season. (laughs) There's going to be decorations everywhere. People aren't even going to notice that the food is very basic and perhaps sad. Though I did like, uh, Shelly, that you sent me to the videos, the chopping block has a website, thechoppingblock.com slash videos, where you can find how to make just about anything. And um, I know I know, I asked you how to cook an entree, but I've been watching more fun things like twice baked potatoes and how to make an apple pie and all the, mm. all the fun stuff that's on your website. And anyway, yeah. thank you for being here, Shelley. It is always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So and I, you sounded as if you might be in need. So I'm happy <laughs> to be here for you, Joe. Well, Shelley, I love you, but always you <laughs> overestimate my abilities. Um, for instance, she says, you know, no, if you have I two over, cooks I in the house. I overestimate my abilities. <laughs> if you have two cooks in the house, you could each pick something to focus on. Um, and then you have like making prime rib or beef tenderloin or roast pork or um, a salmon or a roast duck. How about 
I wanted to talk to you about some of those. I promise you that beef tenderloin. Mm. Put some salt and pepper in it and put it in the oven. Do you have to have a digital thermometer to do that? Which will cost you, you know, $20 will make it come out perfectly. So, yes, I suggest that if when you're learning because you can't time it. It doesn't work. No, I mean, I um, have my mother's yeah. meat thermometer that's probably, I don't know, 60 oh, years old. 10 pounds? Yeah, no, probably you want a new thermometer. <laughs> yeah, give me your, I'm going to send you one for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, you know, something, yeah, more contemporary. So of all those entrees you suggested, the rib, the tenderloin, the pork, the salmon, the roast duckling, um, which are you going to make? I'm not making any of them. <laughs> okay, then. Is someone cooking for you this holiday? <laughs> no, I like to do. I'm. I always. I like to do ethnic food. Um, so I probably will do Chinese, um, or I'll do. Um, I might do duck. I might do um, uh, like a Peking duck. And that would be really delicious. So these aren't simple things that I put together. I was, <laughs> I gave you a different list, Joan. The ones of like, okay, yeah, these ones you can, these are the ones that I think that are the most simple to make. Beef tenderloin, let me just talk about the things that I suggested a little bit. Why did I suggest these? Mm-hmm. Um, partly because they're a, a generally a one-step thing. You season them, you put them in the oven, you leave them whole, and you don't even... Really, you just have to, like with the salmon, you don't even cut it. You know, you put it out on a platter. It looks really beautiful, and people take a little bit. Mm. You know, they just take a fork, and they take some off. The beef tenderloin, you will have to, you know, slice it into some slices after it comes out of the oven. The prime rib, you have to slice it a little bit. But otherwise, it's really just a matter of sticking it in the oven. Do you have to make a sauce for those? No, no. They're delicious on their own. Sauces are overrated. Huh. Um, well, I said know. horseradish sauce because that's kind of simple. You put some sour cream and some horseradish together. You can find a simple recipe. There's no cooking involved, and that and that can be served with the salmon. Also, it's really delicious. So, um, and you, uh, mm-hmm. how do you figure out uh, how like how are beef tenderloins all one size, or can you yeah. get like a ten pound or a five pound? They, they do vary somewhat. They're usually a small one would probably be about five and a half pounds. A large one would be more eight pounds. So they do vary a bit, but they are usually, um, you know, more in the, you know, six pound range. You can just ask your butcher, tell them approximately what you're looking for. But you get a lot more out of the beef tenderloin than you do. So if I take a beef, a normal beef tenderloin and I break it down into like a filet that I'm going to cook as a steak, I get a lot less yield out of it, too, which is another advantage of serving it whole. People tend to eat less when, they, it's, when it's in slices. So oh. like this. So, I, yeah, I don't know why that is. Hmm. Same thing with the salmon. If I were to take the salmon, I just think people eat a little bit less when they have control of what they take. Huh. Not often does it go the other way. Um, so uh, the beef tenderloin, when I slice it, I can usually figure I can serve like 10 people with it easily. Um, so you get the Unless beef you have tenderloin. really big eaters. 
Yeah. You season it, you put it on a cookie sheet, you put it in the oven, and and then... I, I start, you know, the easiest way, the simplest way to do it is to start it at a high temperature or finish it at a, at a high temperature to give it a little bit of a, a char on the outside and then drop the temperature down to low and let it cook the rest of the time. No, like, and what I mean by high temperature, I mean like about 500 degrees to start Whoa. with for about 15 or 20 minutes and then drop it down to like 250 degrees for the remainder of the cooking and let it cook really gently. If you cook it at that high temperature for the whole time, it's a little bit like putting a tourniquet on, on a piece of meat because it really overcooks on the outside and it squeezes the juice out. So, so you wouldn't um, just, like, cook it at a normal temperature and then stick it under the broiler no. to give it a little finish? Well, when you, when you say normal temperature, I think people think of stuff in the oven as, like, 350 degrees. There you go. 350 degrees is for baking, not oh. for cooking. So there's not really many much food, like what I mean, vegetables or meat or anything food-oriented that we cook in the oven at 350 degrees. That's for cookies. So it's always going to be 375, 400, 425 or above or really low or really low. Those are usually the range. So if it's in the 350 range, that's for cookies, for cakes, things like that, maybe toasting nuts. Um, But, um, yeah, we're usually using a high temperature to get some sear or some brown and some low temperature so that things can cook kind of slowly. So, But most of the time we're using a lot of high temperatures except for big roasts which again, like a turkey, you know, um, beef, poultry and um, uh, pork or beef cook differently. Usually with uh, poultry, like a chicken, we can cook it at a higher temperature for the whole process, but not with beef because we don't like it cooked all the way through. We like it a little bit more tender and um, a little less cooked on the interior. I I think that sounds like it's something that if, I bought a digital thermometer. I might be able to manage, mm-hmm. though I will tell you, as I, as, I, as I told you before, I bought most of Thanksgiving dinner. Um, God love you, Sarah Stegner at Prairie Grass. Um, but one, you know, the one job I had was to take the sweet potato mixture and put marshmallows on it and, you know, give them a, put them under the broiler, give them a little bit of a melt. And I turned them into charcoal. I turned the marshmallows. I looked at them once. They were just starting to brown. I looked at them a few minutes later, and they were black. And that was my one cooking effort for Thanksgiving. And my family, which is, God love them, they're so sweet, I pulled it out, and they were like, oh, it's okay. We really like our marshmallows black. It's like a, you know, it's like a fire. It was like Campfire. cooking over a fireplace. And I'm like, yeah. I was, oh, yeah, yeah, God, God love them. But it was humiliating. <laughs> I had one job. I had one job, Shelley, and I, I blew but it. That- you know what, Joan? You you have a lot of other talents. <laughs> many, 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 many. Uh, maybe this New Year's when I'm doing my resolution, I'll try to list those other talents so that I can remind myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, but it's not all about you know, it's not all about the cooking. Like I said, decorate. 
Yes. Yes. I like that idea. Um, we need to take a quick break. And when we come back, I do want to talk some of um, the desserts that you mentioned in your email. I've never made. And frankly, some of them, I don't even know what they are. So uh, I will be decorating, but I love a good dessert. Shelly Young from the Chopping Block and I are going to continue our holiday menu right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. We have holidays coming up where people will be inviting friends and family over and cooking for them. And the funnest part of a meal is oftentimes the dessert. I have never heard, Shelley, of snow globe cheesecakes. Walk me through that one. Oh, that's it. these. Okay, so in the the email that I sent you, Joan, I was suggesting that instead of doing a whole trying to make every single element of your entertaining spectacular. If you're nervous about it, focus on one thing, you know? So if it's like a show, it's a show stopping thing. Like, so a big prime rib coming out of the oven. It's like, you don't have to do much else. You're like, ah, you know, <laughs> decorate the house. Ah, so nice. <laughs> um, Dessert is another one. And people just do an ah, like doing the dessert table. But, you know, you don't have to make all of the desserts. You, you can have, if it's overflowing, you have everybody bring cookies and it's just, you know, it's just this, like extravaganza of desserts. It's beautiful. Or make a show stopping. If you are someone, I'm thinking this is not in your camp, Joan, <laughs> but if you if you are a baker, you love to bake, make one spectacular dessert. So these are hard desserts to make. Nothing easy about any of these. The Snow Globe Cheesecake is, um, this is actually from Food & Wine. I saw it in Food & Wine, and I just thought it was so cool. They do a cheesecake, like these round little cheesecakes, like in, the, in a cupcake tin. And then on top, they make this molded gelatin. This fancy molded gelatin that has like you can put different things in the gelatin, and you put it on a cheesecake, and it looks like a snow globe. Uh, again, I think it's Food and Wine has this recipe on on website. I just think it's so cool, and people just would go ah, you know. Um, Yule logs. These can be ordered online as well, Joan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a cake that looks like a log, you know, and they decorate it with mm-hmm. mushrooms. It's really pretty, pretty for the holidays. Uh, Black Forest cakes. I love that. I love that cake. Um, laden with Kirschwasser, you know, alcohol in there and marinated cherries and whipped cream and chocolate. It's just so beautiful. You know, I will tell you that I saw on Instagram a recipe I saved. It was for um, glitter jello shots. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. I just had my first jello shot recently. Really? Yeah. And I heard there, I heard jello shots are hard to make. Well, this was one was basically you mix vodka and champagne and lemon juice with some um, ge- with some gelatin. And then just let it set and sprinkle edible glitter on it when you when you cut it up. We're for, in my family. We're familiar with Jello shots because we used to have an aunt who has since passed away, who was the embodiment of cranky. And whenever there was a family get together, the minute she walked in the door, somebody would put a, a tray of Jello shots and say, "Hey." And Edna, have one of these. And she would have one or two, and then the afternoon would go much easier for everyone. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I, I was at a fundraiser and somebody was, had them there at this fundraiser. What did you all think? I loved it. Really? I, I did, but I like Jello. Uh, I do too. I really I like the, Jello. I like the struggle it creates. Um, you know, when you eat it, it's just, you know, it fights you just a little bit. Apparently I like them and, and something that's somewhat antagonistic. <laughs> when my kids were little, you know, like in the wintertime, you fix hot cocoa. I would sometimes uh-huh. fix them hot jello. Like you serve it in a mug before it has a chance to harden. And it's like a strawberry. It's like a hot strawberry cup of oh. goodness or a hot raspberry have- cup of goodness. And it was we, we it's hot jello. We were famous. Hot, hot jello. Jo- it's like tea. It's yes. like Esposito. It's Esposito tea. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I like I- that. Shelly, I feel that I'm dragging you down to my level, and I really don't want no. to do that. No, I would rather no. I mean, be you elevated. Know, no, no, no. Everybody, uh, I am a person who likes all kinds of things. I just like them. You know, I prefer if it's kind of done pretty well. You know, um, it doesn't need to be fancy. You could have me over for a peanut butter jelly sandwich, and I would think you were a god. No one cooks for me. You know, well, you know I've um, heard that, that people who are known for being great chefs and great cooks, nobody ever wants to invite them over for a meal because the feeling is that you just can't you can't serve them anything that would be up to their requirements or their level. Yeah, no, and we're just people. I eat, you know, I eat a cheese sandwich, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's just, it's, I'm happy for it. So, yeah, I don't think that uh, you should be afraid. So uh, I wanted to ask you about the gingerbread house cake. Um, mm-hmm. I know about gingerbread houses and decorating them, but mm-hmm. uh, is it like a, sh- a cake in the shape of a house? Yeah, they make molds now. They make all of Nordicware in particular makes, they're, they're really good quality, so they bake the cakes very well. Um, but they do all of these crazy molds. So they have like haunted houses and really? and. Gingerbread houses, and I figure you sprinkle, you know, bake a cake and sprinkle some powdered sugar on it. You could get away with that. It would be really cool looking, you know. <laughs> yeah, I can do that. I, I can do yeah. that, especially if I give everybody a bunch of Jello shots, and they're gonna, and then I'm gonna tell them how great my gingerbread house cake is, and they're just gonna believe me. Um, well, the other they're gonna thing agree with you. Um, yeah. I, I love. Well, I've been, since my uh, chemo ended, I have been on a gluten-free diet per doctor's orders. And it's really Mm -hmm. hard to get good bread. I know that, you know, lots of times for the holidays, people will make really ornate, fancy breads or chocolate breads. Uh, Do you have a recipe where I could use something like cup for cup and it would turn out okay? I, I don't, I really don't know. Um, I'm not a, a really experienced bread baker. I can break, bake a loaf of bread, but not, it's really not my strong suit. Um, I spent the pandemic working on um, a sourdough bread, keeping this mother alive. I must have spent about $500 on flour, keeping my mother alive, and got one loaf of really good sourdough bread out of the whole entire experiment. And so I'm not the one to ask for that particular uh, subject. I understand the principles somehow I can't put them into practice. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I don't, I don't really know. Sorry well, about that. 
Um, that's okay. Um, I have found, I've tried all different kinds of recipes, and um, for the most part, you just can't make up for that last lack of yeastiness, you know, that makes everything mm-hmm. soft. And, and that I love that mm-hmm. yeasty flavor. I think that's about my favorite thing about bread. And, um, and uh, most gluten-free bread is um it goes from really awful to not too bad that's about the range uh, that mm-hmm. that you get there um one of the things i i know we don't only have a couple minutes but you um one of your spectacular desserts is black forest cake um i've mm-hmm. seen that on the great british bake off lots of times they'll have the contestants make that is that really hard i think so really <laughs> i mean you know of uh, it is, it, you know, I mean, I think there's a way to do things more simply all the time. Um, so, you know, you can use a cake mix um, and, you know, use whipped cream and uh, put some cherries and marinate them in alcohol. You need alcohol in there. Um, do they have to be really maraschino cherries? Like- no, I don't. It's black cherries. Oh, are usually that's the name, Joan. Duh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I don't. I don't know, but that's what they generally use. Um, is uh, their black cherries? You can get frozen ones. So I know there's a way that you could do this kind of an easier version um, to get the nice flavor, um, which I think is booze and chocolate primarily. Um, they use a Kirschwasser, which is a cherry brandy, which tastes more like brandy than cherry. Is that the same thing as Kier? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. It's like the it's like the abbreviation for that I see. Uh, alcohol. They use it in fondue also when you make cheese fondue. Really? I've made cheese yeah. fondue. I never put that in. Does it give it a special zing? Uh, yeah, traditionally there's uh you know, there's white wine, but there's a little bit of Kirschwasser in there. Yeah. Hmm. It's a secret magic ingredient. <laughs> now we have a secret magic ingredient. We've you squeezed know one out of Shelly. A professional secret. Um, no, the I, man, I have a friend that used to tease me. She used to say, Shelly, every time she would ask me a question about cooking, I would just say, add some water. And so she ultimately <laughs> said, your magic ingredient in cooking is water. And I'm like, exactly. Nothing wrong with that. Um, I have no. to tell you, uh, for those of you listening, again, the choppingblock.com slash videos there are hundreds of these things covering everything from how to chop something or cook something, even things that you think you already know how to do. Uh, it's really fascinating uh, um, when you see it done professionally and realize that you could do it better. Uh, Shelley, thank you so much uh, for sharing your time with us. Have a great holiday. You too. You too. Take care of yourself and go eat your Chinese food, and I will, I'm sure, share my tales of woe with whatever I fix with you next time we talk. Yeah, put some marshmallows on it, on the, on the graham crackers. on it. That's chocolate. It's a s'more. Yeah, and fix that hot yeah. jello for your guests. Uh, Okay, that's my cooking secret that I share with you. Uh, Shelly Young, The Chopping Block. Uh, They have a facility in Lincoln Square. We're going to take a break and get back to politics right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We were speaking earlier about the migrant situation in the city of Chicago. There has been some... 
attention focused on what the city of Chicago is doing and how they are doing it. Namely, uh, the city of Chicago has apparently or is apparently entering into contracts with some of the owners of commercial buildings that have gone empty since the pandemic. And those buildings are going to be rehabbed and repurposed to house migrants. The problem with that is, is that it has been a process that has not only not been transparent, but it's actually been pretty opaque. And uh, some people are kind of calling that into question. I'm joined now by Joe Ferguson, who's the former city inspector general, is now an adjunct professor at Loyola and is about to be the next president of the Civic Federation. Joe, thanks for much, so much for being here today. Joe, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Can you oh, hear me? Great. Yes, I couldn't there for a second, hey. and, and now I can. So, no worries. Um, if I understand this correctly, the current administration of the city of Chicago is saying that they don't have to share any kind of information, like how these particular buildings were chosen, what the criteria was, um, how much they're going to be paying as far as rent, except that... The one um, organization that did do some reporting on this said that the rents that they were able to ascertain were much, much higher than those same buildings had been asking for their empty commercial space to be filled with commercial people. And the city's response was, well, you know, it's a lot different to put people in there rather than a business. And that's why the rents are going to be so high. What is your take on all this? First of all, have I left anything important out? Well, I, <laughs> I think the difficulty, Joan, it's a, actually you, you, you end with a great follow-up question. Has, has anything important been left out? And the answer is we don't know. And that's the problem, right? Um, uh, I think what you're referring to is the usually um, fantastic reporting of McDumkey at, at Block Club, now senior editor at Block mm-hmm. Club. And... Um, uh, you know, your phrasing sort of raises a, it, it holds a number of questions. Um, when the city says it doesn't have to, we could all get into an argument about whether it has to, um, but there is no argument to be had about whether it should, right? Mm-hmm. And um, whether it has the capacity to, whether whether the I, we don't have to is actually hiding the fact that the city itself doesn't have possession of the contracts, which is one of the implications that we've heard, and um, and that they're not the city's contracts. They're the contractor, the contracts between um, the service corporation that has been hired to, uh, uh, to help the city here, help hired um, by the city, in essence, under, a, uh, I think, a state contract. Um, and um, that that entity has the contracts. Well, yeah, but no. Ultimately, this is the provision of um, services um, for facilities um, that the city uh, and um, uh, directly and indirectly, and therefore the taxpayers, are paying for. And to that extent, it is essentially a city contract. The city should want to have possession of those contracts. The city should want to be able to make a full disclosure of those contracts. And if they don't have those contracts, we all have a problem. That's taxpayer money. And beyond that, 
What uh, additionally you raise in, 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 in the lead-in to your question here is um, a matter of process. Um, the city has said, hey, look, this is, these are residences, not commercial. Um, these are commercial um, property owners, and the prices are inevitably going to be different because there's a difference in those prices. Well, the, the, the thing there is that all of us should understand exactly what the process was that took us to those prices. Let's just take the city's premise on its face. That, that residential is different from commercial and it's going to cost more. Well, did we go through a process of trying to get the best price on the residential? I think uh, Vice Mayor and Alderman Walter Burnett said, those look high to him and we probably can negotiate them down. And he's probably right. And it may be that the city itself has in, is endeavoring now to negotiate the price down. But that in itself comes back around to the beginning. Why wasn't it that price in the first place? And how did we get there? So there's a whole lot of transparency issues. There's a whole lot of accountability issues. There's a whole lot of uh, contract management issues lurking in all of this. I'm trying to remember if I read this in Mike Dumke and Melanie Mercado's reporting, but I remember reading somewhere that it appeared that some of these were no-bid contracts, that there wasn't a, okay, here's everybody we're posting, here's what we need, the kind of space we need, uh, the kind of location we need, uh, put your bid in. But the impression that I got somewhere, if not from Block Club somewhere else, was that at least some of these were no-bid contracts, which begs the question, again, how were these people chosen? Right, exactly, and and some of them, some of them absolutely, and Block Club reported this were no bid, and we have to put no bid in context. This is not no bid as in old school clout. This is this is no bid for the purpose of what is essentially an emergency procurement, and we can have a conversation in a minute or two about you know where what the tripwire is for emergency and when emergency ends, but. Um, uh, in the context of emergency procurement, that's right. Um, uh, immediately, you go out and you get what you need, especially if it's a service contract rather than the purchase of, 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 of tangible goods, um, uh, if you will. And um, so absolutely, that's right. It's the utilization of emergency authority for what certainly was at the front end a crisis situation. Um, uh, and then the question is, well, at what point – Having entered into these agreements, does this, at least as to those services, this no longer constitute an emergency and is something that actually should be put out to bid or at least should be renegotiated relative to to, to market prices? And so what we have is a suspension of regular processes and then hiding behind it without the requisite transparency that tells us all this was accountable and done the right way for the right reasons at the right price. One of the things that I find most surprising about this is who our mayor is. Our mayor is a diehard progressive. And to then, you know, publicly say, well, we don't have to provide you with any of this information. And frankly, some of it we don't even have. It seems antithetical to who this man purports to be. I I think, Joan... Everybody who runs for mayor, um, and I recall this from the campaign, the, the, the full gamut of, of candidates across the uh, across the political spectrum 
all committed to being the most transparent. (laughs) And every mayor, once they're in office, um, continues the claim of being the most transparent and states the words, but then they're in power. And what the transparency then is revealing is what's going on behind the scenes in the utilization of that power. So that's just a natural thing. I I, I understand and appreciate your sort of highlighting the irony um, in terms of of progressive values, which have always promoted transparency. But this, this is sort of normal course what power does, which is why it is we need to have rules and procedures about all of this. And right now, you know, the the Freedom of Information Act, as it operates in in Illinois and all of the exceptions and especially the exceptions in times of emergency, allow for all sorts of escape hatches. And that's something that's something that should be a follow up after all of this. Um, But, you know, um, Mayor Johnson um, is 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 basically doing, you know, what people in power do. And and we shouldn't be terribly surprised about that, but we should be saying, hey, okay, if this is what's happening when the good guys are doing it, then we need to tighten up the rules. Yeah. Joe, maybe it's because I've lived around here too long, but when somebody doesn't want to make things public, my immediate assumption is that there's something that they want to hide, that if whatever it is is being requested was made public, that somehow they would look bad. And that's why they don't want to um, to um, show the contracts or or share what information they have. Am I being too cynical? Do I not understand how this process works? (laughs) So, Joan, you you, you started out by putting it in terms of having lived around here for a long time. (laughs) I'm going to take it broader. I'm going to say. You know, it just so no secrets to the audience. I have gray hair and probably you have gray hair. And um, because we've been around for a long time and um, when you've been around for a long time, what you know is this is the tendency of what happens. And what the shame is in all of it is that um, and, 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 and it being Chicago just simply amplifies that concern because that is our history which means to overcome this baseline of doubt, concern, suspicion, that really what we want out of government is to be proactively transparent, to dispel the notion that um, there's something wrong that's being concealed. And that's the place that we need to get to. Are we going to get there? Um, the, <laughs> I, Certainly, I'm not going to live that much longer, Joe, so um, (laughs) I'd rather this happen sooner rather than later. I I, I think I think everybody would. And, you know, there's there's an old Jewish proverb, um, uh, I think, that, you know, uh, that says that um, any anything worth doing in life is unlikely to be achieved in this lifetime. But that does not give you a pass we're turning away from it. We have to we have to do that work. Um, but the answer is yes, because the solutions here are, are available to us, both at the city level and at the state level as well. But but what happens is, as soon as the crisis is over, there is very little um, uh, autopsy, if you will, to say, OK, what what went wrong here and where were we not aligned with the values um, that we brought into office? Where are we not aligned with the values of of the people and the expectations of the people and then make the changes? 
And we tend not to do that because we've moved on to the next thing um, in a very, very static-filled world in a very, very turbulent time. We have to we have to try to keep our eyes on the ball on these things um, so that we fix them for the next time. I always remain hopeful, but I'm always realistic about the expectations. When it comes to um, this mayor, I remember uh, in the first year or so of Lori Lightfoot's administration, I would get very frustrated. And every it seemed everywhere I turned, people were saying, give her time. She's new to government. You know, there's a steep learning curve. You know, give her time, give her time. Um, is this part of the steep learning curve of Brandon Johnson? I think that I, I, I'm going to the answer broadly is yes. Um, uh, his his predecessor actually spent time in government and in government administration and in government administration in ways um, that um, directly where where the, where the direct assignment was actually to fix concerns about corruption and, and, and non-transparency and non-accountability and procurement. And, um, and so the, the experience was there, but there was this allowance. And I, I want to speak to the allowance in a second. With respect to Mayor Johnson and many of the people that came, that he brought in with him, there isn't that experience at all. And so there's actually more of a case for the allowance. And I, I believe or at least I, I feel like I have to believe um, that most people understand these are this is a human enterprise being conducted by human beings, and when human even when human beings try their best, if it's in new circumstances, mistakes will be made, and what people want is simply an acknowledgement of a mistake, an acknowledgement that something didn't go as well as it could and an explanation of how we're going to get it right next time. And that's how people see, you know what, they care, they're going to get it better, and that's all we can ask is best efforts and continually getting better. And what happens, unfortunately, is is that the political impulses incline people to say, no, we can't let anybody know that, that, mm-hmm. that we kind of messed this one up. And then we go into concealment, we lose legitimacy and trust, and at that point we're just in a bad place. But I think a bigger allowance could be could be um, argued for Mayor Johnson, but more importantly, Mayor Johnson's administration, because a mayor doesn't do all of these things. It's his staff that does all of these mm-hmm. things. And I will say one thing about his staff. At the very front end, one of the first appointments he made was Rich Guidus as the chief of staff. And, and a lot of people in establishment Chicago breathe a sigh of relief because Rich Guidus goes back 30 years of government service in the city comes from Bridgeport. His father was a state state elected official, um, really old school and labored and came up through the ranks in the city to, for a very long time, lead the office of emergency management and communications. And when we're talking about the migrant crisis, we're talking about a chief of staff who actually has been through the drill before he was part of the leadership team during COVID. So, the experience is there and the knowledge is there. And so the question is whether Mayor Johnson is actually holding accountable the people around him who do have the knowledge and are supposed to be executing on this. One of the things that you talked about is getting in power and then realizing that 
rather than just saying, like, we could have done this better. Here's all everything we did and how we did it, that there's this impulse to cover things up or keep things from seeing the light of day. As a student of politics in Illinois, how is it that these people don't realize the lesson that the rest of us have learned over the years? The cover up is always worse than the crime. <laughs> um, I go back to the fact that um, a, a lot of the I mean, we're, ta- we're talking history over the long run. And what's different now from in the past is there wasn't an expectation. There wasn't as much public knowledge um, and access to information than is the case today, which makes it even more likely that eventually people like the people like the folks at Block Club are going to figure things out. And so from a communications perspective, I think I think the prime directive, rule number one, um, <laughs> rule number one of Fight Club, never, never talk about Fight Club. <laughs> rule number one of communication is get out in front of it. And yep. you're right. It, it, it's a bit of a mystery as to why that fun. And so then we could say, all right, you know, Mayor Johnson hasn't been there before. So who's leading the communication shop? And why is it that they're not sort of following the, the prime directive rule number one of, of, of sort of the, the wisdom of, of the communications field? And but you're right. It's it's. Everyone knows what the lesson is, um, but at the end of the day, go back to everybody's human, and we don't know what's going to happen. Um, we don't know what people in power are going to do most of the time, especially those that have never been in power until they're in power mm-hmm. and until they're sort of being tested by crisis. And what we all, to put a positive sort of, of note on all of this, we have to we have to allow for it a little bit. And we have to hope and we have to look to the media to drive um, the, the, the thing that we should all want, which is learning from the mistakes early on to hit reset, to get it right going forward. And there's time to do that. We have, more, we have nearly three and a half years to this administration. Um, and so, you know, we all have to hold out hope and we have to put our faith in the media that they're going to press on this mm-hmm. is that the mistakes will be accounted for and the mistakes will be corrected. I'm sure you read uh, or heard what Alder woman Jeanette Taylor said when she was on the podcast with Ben Jarofsky about uh, she herself and her fellow progressives. We should not be on the fifth floor. And I'm speaking my whole heart. We're not ready because we haven't been in government long enough to know how government really works. Um, I feel like we're not ready and it's showing out in the wash I don't got to say it. People see it. We're pretending like now we got the power. Let us show you how it's supposed to be done. And we look real stupid right now. I imagine that did not go over real well on the fifth floor, but it kind of is at least from the heart and honest. Um, It's so a couple of things. Um, uh, Alderman Taylor's appearance um, on the Ben Jarowski show was simply the full public reveal of what she has been saying going all the way back to the election, um, telling folks, look, you're not ready. So be careful what you what you ask for. And if it looks like we're getting there, then we need to have a team set up uh, of people who actually understand government to start to prepare to govern. And she said that, I think, 
she said that as far back as February, as I understand it, during the runoff, during the transition. And so, you know, so on the Ben Jarofsky show, she was simply saying publicly in a Howard Beale, I'm mad as hell and I'm not (laughs) going to take it anymore moment (laughs) for those with gray hair and know that that, that's a quote from Network, Um, uh, that, um, uh, that, you know, she's she's right. She's right. And 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 Jeanette cares and Jeanette wants this to go well. And I think what she decided in an extraordinary moment that is that to me sounded like what you get um, when you get uh, taken to church. But the church is in a woodshed is, look, let's stop kidding ourselves. We need help. And so open the doors to the help because because broader Chicago wants to help. And I think part of what she's seeing is just a, a closing of the doors and a refusal to allow anybody in who actually can help. And that hurts her constituents and it hurts us all. And so it was a cry for help. Well, I hope it is a cry for help that was um, listened to and a cry for help that resonated with the administration. Um, Joe, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about this. Um, I need a lot of help a lot of times understanding the inner workings of, of government. I've seen it from the outside, but that's a lot different than living it from the inside. And I really appreciate your expertise. You bet. Joe Ferguson, uh, former city inspector general, now teaches at Loyola and uh, is going to be the president of the Civic Federation. We're going to be back with more after Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Before I leave today, I want to give you a chance to walk away with two tickets to see Stephanie Miller live. The Sexy Liberal Comedy Show is coming here Saturday, October, October, Saturday, August 17th at the Vic Theater for an 8 o'clock show. If you're the third caller, 773 Seven six three nine two seven eight seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight. WCPT is giving away two free tickets so that you and a guest can see the sexy liberal comedy show when Stephanie comes here for the Democratic National Convention in August. Again, the show is August seventeenth, eight o'clock at the Vic theater um and it's a make a wonderful gift if you want to get them and give them to the political junkie in your life if you just want to go straight to her website and buy tickets that's uh, sexyliberal.com slash tour our contests are open as long as you're at least 18 years old live in the greater chicagoland northwest indiana area one entry per person one winner per household Void where prohibited by law. Listeners may only win or qualify to win once every 30 days. Complete rules are on our WCPT at 20.com website. Click on the contest tab. Remember, your assignment this weekend, as it is every weekend, is to do something, talk to somebody, find something that brings you joy. Find something that brings you joy because we got to gear up for 2024. It is going to take a lot of effort and we got to be on top of our game. So... Find those happy places when and where you can. Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you Monday. Have a great weekend and good night.